It's uh, raining outside, as you can hear. Kind of a bummer. It sounds nice, but I wanted to sit outside and do a show tonight. Yeah. Maybe I'll just stand here at the door. It's not raining as hard as it was on my way home from the movie theater tonight. But nevertheless, I don't have a cover, so I can't really sit out here. I'm over at my parents' house, and... You know, I'll, I'll confess, I always uh, like it when my parents uh, tell me that they're going out of town for the night. Because they've got this uh, dog, Scout, the dachshund in here. Named, uh, of course, after uh, Harper Lee's... Beloved character Scout Finch and uh, to kill a mockingbird. She she just died a few weeks ago uh, Not not the character uh, not the dog <laughs> Not the character or the dog, but the author Harper Lee died. Maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later. I guess I should since I'm here in Alabama doing a podcast <clears throat> And to kill a mockingbird is perhaps uh, one of the most well-known books about Alabama during the Great Depression, or maybe even at all. I don't know. Um, but yes, uh, by the way, from Alabama, from Birmingham, Alabama to be exact, this is uh, the Midnight Citizen Show. I'm your host, Mike Booty. Coming to you on a Saturday night, hanging here at the back patio door. So what am I going to do? It's raining, but yes, I, as I was saying, I always get a little bit excited. You know, sure, I have to spend a night away from my my home, my home with my wife. But I always like it because you know my parents had this big back porch that, uh, growing up, you know, I never quite appreciated. I'm going to make some coffee over here. Until a few years ago, until I was about you know 28, 29 years old. And I realized just this amazing back porch with this uh, incredible view of the woods and the creek, you know. And uh, just all sorts of nice stuff to look at from the back porch. What do we got here? We got great value. Breakfast blend. 100% Arabica coffee. Am I saying that right? Arabica? Yeah, that's right. 48k cups. This maybe isn't the best in the world, but uh, it's what my dad likes to drink, so tonight I will be drinking it also. I've got to wait for the pot to heat up. So, <laughs> I keep getting off on tangents here. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but yeah, this, uh, this, this back porch, you know, uh, I, I always like hanging out on it when I come over to my parents' house. You know, like set up the computer, watch some YouTube videos, maybe some old Joe Bob Briggs Monster Vision or Drive-In Theater on a Saturday night. You know, I love that stuff. It's great to unwind after a hard day. And, uh... On the back porch, but uh, tonight, you know, of course, when it's raining, I can't do that, so the fate would have it. 
I was looking forward to sitting on this back porch and doing my podcast and uh, drinking a cup of coffee. I have a cigar. I have a a cigar. You know, the last of my five cigars that came with uh, the Cigar of the Month Club subscription that uh, Jessica, my wife, got me for Valentine's Day. So I'm looking forward to having that. But I can't because it's raining, so what am I going to do? Well, I have a solution. And I've actually done this before. I've actually uh, done a podcast in this way before where I can kind of have all of my outdoor cake and, you know, eat it too. Let me finish, uh, wait for this coffee to finish. There we go. All right. Let's uh, move through the kitchen here. Yeah. Walk down the stairs into the basement. I was terrified of this basement when I was a kid. And open up that door. Yeah, let's open up this garage door. And, uh, yeah, if this were a film right now, this would be a grand moment, you know? You would just, uh, see, uh, the garage door opening against the backdrop of my little basement studio. <laughs> Table set up, laptop, computer. Just put my coffee down. A coffee filter out for ashing a cigar, <laughs> you know. And, uh, this is, this is how I'll do it tonight, you know. Can have my outdoor cake and eat it too. Yeah, and uh, everything's covered. I'm just able to look out into the black night of suburban Birmingham, Alabama, and enjoy the rainfall, have my coffee. Yeah, that's good stuff. So, sit here for a minute. Scout. Kind of the whole reason I'm here doing this dog sit is just about the most low-maintenance dog in the world. You know, she doesn't require really any uh, any maintenance. <laughs> she, I came over, she didn't even want to go outside because it's raining. And uh, she'll probably be totally fine until in the morning. But I'll uh, get her and bring her down here with me in just a minute to see if she can go outside. So, I'm going to pull my chair uh, up to angled against the garage and the outside because to tell you the truth i'm still a little freaked out down here <laughs> because uh, i have light you know and and i can see my side of the garage it's a two car it's a two car garage and uh, my parents took my mom's car my mom's van and on the other side of the garage is my dad's um 2016 yellow mustang uh that he uh purchased recently he traded it's his retirement car he had a white mustang then he traded it in for a yellow mustang convertible so uh, i'm not allowed to drive it <laughs> uh but you know on that side of the garage though i mean it's got this deep dark alley you know that goes back to the secret hidden door which i've never been into that leads i think just under the house there's a lot of dirt under there and all that um I think at one point, uh, the old owners of this house, like 20 years ago, were going to 
build on an addition to the house, and uh, it was supposed to open up through this weird door in the back of the garage, uh, but they just never completed the addition, but they kept the door. So now it's just this creepy-looking cellar door, you know, shrouded in all this blackness where there's a bunch of power tools and old abandoned toys, dolls with one eye, you know. <laughs> I'm not trying to sound like dramatic here, but that, that's really it. So I, I decided right now I'm, I'm angling myself, you know, <laughs> to the... Uh, to the the shadowy alcove and uh so that i can look at that while simultaneously looking out onto the night you know so i'm covered in all directions i've got my back pretty much to the wall you know so i can see i can anticipate a sneak attack by some uh unknown masked assailant you know i don't know <laughs> i uh actually had a really uh, bad dream the other night it was one of those nights, you know, where you just have recurringly bad dreams. And I usually get those uh, when I'm pretty stressed at work. You know, I've got, like, bosses breathing down my neck. Uh, you know, I'm I'm just, I'm lacking confidence. Or uh, I drink a lot the night before, and then I, then I pass out. And I think, uh, you know, the other night, the latter was more like it. I, I've been under a lot of stress at work, but I don't want to get into any of that. You know, I'm always under stress at work. Uh, so yeah, I just had like a series of horrible dreams and, uh, one of them, see that kind of scared me because like a light and I know it's a, a timed light just went out behind me. Kind of creepy. <laughs> you know, there's just some things you never get over just being in a big house alone on a rainy night. It's just something that, uh, you're, you're programmed to be afraid of on some kind of basic level. I don't know. But yeah, this nightmare I had the other night, you know, I was just in a house and I was with a bunch of people like, kind of college-age people. You know, there was, like, the jock, and there was the nerd, which was really just the jock with glasses. He just kind of had that body type, but because he had glasses on, he was the nerd, you know. There was the soror sorority sister, you know, the shy girl, you know, the, the dangerous prankster. And it was just raining like crazy outside. It, it was, you know, a lot rougher than this, and it was storming, you know, lightning and thunder, and uh, all the lights were kind of gradually going off in the house, just shutting down one by one. And, uh, you know, just looked out into the landscape and uh, just a shock of lightning lit up this bulky stock still figure that I, I guess was like a, a masked killer or something. I don't know what, but, uh, you know, it, it just shook me awake. I, I realized that I was in a, a, a college, you know, like a teen slasher movie from the 1980s or something. And I've watched those movies from time to time. I always kind of watch them with, uh, you know, with my friends, like joking, just having a good time. Because we're removed from the situation. But if you're in something like that, I bet it'd probably be pretty scary, you know. Just trapped in a house with a bunch of stereotypes. And some uh, killers lurking outside in the rainy night. Who knows? That's that was kind of scary. I uh, I kind of had empathy in that moment for for all those like you know teenagers I've watched over the years get killed on celluloid. You know. So yeah, it's just uh, 
But you know, all's good. All 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 is very nice, you know, tonight. It's really nice weather, you know. I was actually somebody uh, posted on Facebook earlier today from Birmingham. Uh they said that uh, 20 23 years ago today, uh March 9th, 1993 or March 12th, 1993 rather, was the um was the day of the of the big winter blizzard in Alabama. Uh, that year, uh, people still talk about it. You know, it was one of those years we got um, we were almost to the spring. It, it had been very warm, and then just suddenly, literally overnight, we got blanketed with like eighteen inches of snow. Like I could just remember looking out on the side yard, the one that I'm looking out on right now, and just seeing it just blanketed in snow and all the dead trees were just you know all the trees with the leaves gone you know were just covered in it and i've talked about this in the past you know on the show the the that that was the uh the winter blizzard you know we called it because we didn't know any better you know we're in the south we're in alabama um that that was a big deal to us and we still talk about it today we have not had a snowstorm like that that was that sudden and really that devastating. I mean, it shut down everything for almost a week. I was out of school for an entire week, you know. And, uh, you know, that that was uh, the time, you know, I we actually had to abandon our house because the power went out. And we um, shacked up with the neighbors down the street. And their house is still down there, but the neighbors don't live there anymore. And, uh, you know, we just all crowded in. And lived around their fireplace for about two days. You know, cooked chili over a Coleman stove, you know. And uh, and eventually said, you know, this is not going to do it. You know, we need to, um, we, we, you know, we have a plan. You know, the adults had a plan. So we hiked across the street to the neighbor's church, the Christ Church, Church uh, United Methodist, which is, you know, still obviously there. And, um it was actually where I went and voted the other day, and uh, we lived. Uh, we re- we managed to sneak into that church via the uh, the prayer room, which was always unlocked for people who wanted to come in and pray at all hours. You know, and we were able to just go and and live there. And they uh, had power and heat, and uh, we just lived in the uh, in the rec room. You know, above the sanctuary of that Methodist church, and. Uh, we played foosball and uh, ping pong and, and watched their vast collection of, you know, Chris, uh, Christian movies, like, <laughs> you know, Christian movies. So it was just, you know, it was um, kind of an exciting time. And uh, but one of those times where I was like, OK, I've been in the same room now for five days. I'm ready to get out of here and go back to school. So when the snow melted, I was kind of glad about it, you know. You know, weeks after that, because we, like I said, we're in the South. We don't really know any better. There were urban legends going all around my fourth grade class that uh, that there was still snow in the ground. Remember, like you know, this one kid, Reuben, would just like say, uh, you know, in the lunch in the lunch line. I have a vivid memory of this. I'm not making this up. He'd be like, "Oh no, I saw snow under my under my parents' car." Like, man, that was two weeks ago. There's no more snow in the world. No, no, it's under my parents' car. They live in a cold area on top of a mountain. I saw it. You know, he was probably right. I don't know. So. Oh, man. But yeah, I just, um, 
I just got back from seeing a film. As a matter of fact, uh, I just got back from seeing 10 Cloverfield Lane. And uh, if you don't know about this movie, it's uh, it's like a science fiction, uh, you know, thriller drama that, uh, you know, just came just came out this week. And there was a movie that was made a few years ago. Like I, I'm trying to remember because I remember going to see Cloverfield on opening night. That was a found footage movie about a monster that was invading New York. And it was all shot from the first person's perspective of, you know, a guy holding a camera. Who actually I found out, I didn't know this until recently, uh, the guy holding the camera in Cloverfield is uh, T.J. Miller, who's on uh, Silicon Valley now. He's uh, Ehrlich, the guy who owns the uh, house or the incubator, whatever he calls it. Silicon Valley is a good show. So, uh, you know, I went and saw this movie on opening night, and I think it, it must have been about eight or nine years ago. I mean, it was a while ago that that movie came out. But I went and saw it at a midnight show. That was around the time I was living in the house with the with the three other guys, and I think two of us went and saw it, Hunter and Jason. And uh, now all these years later, this, like, movie comes out. And, you know, it just came out, like, very suddenly. Like, um, I, I hadn't even heard about this movie until, like, about two weeks ago. And I was in the theater um, coming out of another movie, and I saw the poster for it. I was like, hey, is that anything like that Cloverfield that came out, like, eight years ago? And, uh, you know, I watched the trailer for this movie, and it, it looked like it was, like, totally unrelated, unrelated you know. For one, um, you know, Cloverfield was a found footage movie. It was shot on a, on a you know, consumer-grade ca- camera, you know. And, uh, and this movie is, you know, just a traditional, like, what do you call them? Regular movies, I guess? They just, you know, took a camera and they set up some lights and they shot the actors, you know, reading the script. <laughs> they they weren't reading the script, you know, they were acting, but, you know. So, and it was from the same people, you know, it was from, uh, you know, J.J. Abrams, who, um, you know, did the Star Wars uh, movie, the new one. And, you know, uh, so we we were just not really knowing exactly how this movie was supposed to connect to the old Cloverfield movie. And, um... And I guess that was the point. You know, you're supposed to go in and not really know exactly how the movies connect. You know, why is this movie regular when the other was found footage and all that stuff, you know? So, you know, we we just... um, So I actually went and saw it with Jason. I I saw the first Cloverfield movie with Jason, and uh, this time Josh joined us. And, uh... Josh is a good friend of mine, you know, me, I've been friends with him and Jason, you know, for quite a while, you know, so we, uh, we went and saw this tonight and, uh, you know, it, it was a, it was a pretty good movie. I have to say it's, I would definitely file it under the uh, category of pretty good movies that I'm never going to see again, you know, because it's like once you see these movies, you know, and the mystery is un- un- unveiled to you. You know, okay, that's fine. Case closed. You know, we can move on now. <laughs> like, I'm not really going to go back to it and study it for its, like, art forms or acting or screenplay writing or anything. You know, it's just like, like one of these movies where everything kind of hinges on what the ending is going to be. And once you know the ending, you know, it's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to it. 
Um, but I don't know. Maybe so. I mean, maybe if I think about it some more, you know, maybe I, you know. But uh, I don't know. It, it didn't really have those things that make me go back to movies, like interesting, like really interesting characters, you know. Uh, you know, John Goodman's in it, and I love John Goodman. You know, he was in that movie Matinee, which uh, had a bunker in it. It had a fallout shelter in it. And, you know, coincidentally, this movie does too. So he's like, you know, be like a new genre of movie, movies, you know, John Goodman fallout shelter movies. I don't know. So, you know, so I, I, I don't know. But uh, you know, overall, though, I mean, I would definitely say if you're into like sci-fi thriller dramas, you know, you should go see it. Um, I, I I'll try not to spoil anything. Essentially, um, you know, the the lead character uh, is a girl, and she breaks up with her boyfriend, and I, I guess she's going back home. Like the first five minutes of the movie are kind of in absolute silence, and they just are over music, and and we're led to believe that she's just uh, disillusioned with her life in the big city, and she hates her boyfriend, so she's going back home, and then she gets run off the road by somebody, and the next thing she knows, she wakes up and she's like in this bunker and she's chained uh, to like a pipe. Um, so it turns out that John Goodman is you know keeping her hostage and. He says that the world has been destroyed, you know, like they're, they're in the middle of some kind of a nuclear war. The air is unclean. And he's a survivalist who's built this underground shelter just for himself. But uh, it turned out that, you know, he was driving down the road on his way to get in the shelter. And he saw her laying in the ditch after she had gotten in a car accident. And he just he couldn't just leave her there, you know, like it, she appealed to his humanity. So, you know, he picks her up and takes her to the shelter and there's another guy in the shelter, too, who happened to, like, bang on the door at the very last minute, appealed to John Goodman's humanity, and he let him in, too. So it's the three of them in the shelter kind of waiting out the apocalypse. And that's, that's like, the premise for the movie. And, uh, you know, beyond that, there's some pretty good interesting twists and turns. Like, you're not really sure, first of all, if the, the story that John Goodman's telling about the air being unclean and the nuclear holocaust, you know, you don't know if all that's just pure, pure bullshit. And you're led to believe that it is because he's just kind of insane. Like, I mean, okay, she's safe, that's fine. Why do you need to chain her up? You know, stuff like that. You know, and he starts having the shakes, exhibiting, like, signs of cabin fever. And uh, he's just comes across as kind of an unclear character. And in other words, I think it was a good character for him, you know, because you normally see John Goodman who is one of my favorite actors, you know, from Roseanne, you know, in, in Matinee, which is one of my favorite movies. You know, the, the line that I say at, at the end of each Midnight Citizen episode since 2010 is keep your eyes open, you know. That's that's a line for Matinee. John Goodman says it at the end of the movie, you know, and, and I liked it, so I, so I stole it, you know. <laughs> like I do. I, I like stealing things that are interesting to me, so. But, you know, he normally plays these kind of like gentle giants, you know, these like clumsy oafs are these very confident good guys, you know, who, who just take, like, a young character under under his wing and teach him things about the world. You know, that's kind of what it is. And, and you never get to see him play, like, just a pure villain, you know. Like, I, I think maybe, like, in the movie Barton Fink, you know, the Coen Brothers movie, you know, he played, like, the an incarnation of evil. But he was still such a nice guy in that movie. You know, you liked him in that movie. He was, like, funny. You know, he was tender-hearted. He, he just happened to be, like essentially satan you know 
but you never really get to see that side of him, and in this movie you do. And I'm not saying that he's ultimately a, a terrible guy, and that's really where the drama of the movie is, is you're trying to just, you're spending most of the time, like I would say about 75% of the movie, making up your mind about John Goodman, you know. And, uh, and, the, and a lot of tension comes from that. A lot of good laughs. There's some funny scenes in the movie, you know. There's a, there's a scene where they're playing a, a game, they're playing, um, what's that game, Scategories or, or 20 Questions or whatever, where they, you know, one person has, like, a thing in mind and the other person has to ask them questions to bring it out, you know. And uh, and it, it kind of hit home with me because, like, you know, we've all played games with really bad contestants, and I've been a bad contestant from time to time, you know. Like, there's a scene where they're like, hey, let's play Monopoly, and I just kind of openly laughed. Nobody else did, but I'm like, you know, what would it be like to be underground in a bunker for two years waiting out the apocalypse with like the with 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 a game of Monopoly? I mean, like you would kill each other, you know. So, yeah, this scene where they're playing the game, uh, you know, John Goodman uh, gets the scene, gets this character and he's like, you know, playing against the other two characters. And he's like, I, I know what you're up to. I see you when you're sleeping. And they think that he's onto them, like they're trying to craft a plan or something, and he thinks that they're trying to, like, you know, wage war against them. And all he knows is he's playing a character. So, like, when, when the guy is about to come out and admit that, yeah, they suspect that he's not all there, the girl's like, oh, you're Santa Claus, <laughs> you know. I kind of spoiled that joke, but I didn't tell it very well, so I guess it evens out. But, you know, it's a funny scene. Anyway. So. So, yeah. the, the And, you know, so, yeah, you're trying to spend most of the movie figuring out, you know, if John Goodman's on the up and up, if he's a good level character, or if he's just batshit insane lying about this war, you know, lying about what's going on overhead. Um, And... And then the rest of the movie is, like, you're trying to figure out, okay, what's this have to do with Cloverfield? Like, I mean, is there anything going on? Is there any connection, you know, with the with the movie, the found footage movie that came out a few years ago? And uh, you get answers, you know, you, you, you get answers. It's very satisfying ending. Like, I will definitely say that the movie is, you know, a lot of movies that are like this that basically hinge on, you know, is this ending going to be good or not? You know, is it going to be worth my time? You know, um, don't have very good endings because they spend so much time building up suspense, and then the answer is just not interesting enough. It's essentially like seeing a, a monster with like, you know, and you can see the rubber zipper on the suit. You know, so. But this movie has a very satisfying ending. You know, the, it's a very tense movie. I would equate it to just being, like, nightmarish. You know, like, the, the last 20 minutes of the movie are just an absolute nightmare to watch, and you're tense through the whole thing. And, you know, I've seen a lot of freaking movies, and um, and, and I don't get, you know, so tensed or scared anymore. But, you know, just sitting in that theater with, like, the, you know, surround sound and the, you know... It was a, you know, it was a worthwhile experience. I would definitely say I enjoyed it, and uh, it was fun watching it with two friends. And, uh, you know, going, doing, doing that great thing after a movie where you go out into the front of the theater, you know, and you're standing around just talking, you know, about, uh, about the movie and kind of breaking it down with each other. 
you know, and, and talking about, you know, other upcoming movies, you know. I don't know. It's just kind of a fun thing, you know. <laughs> this coffee is actually not that bad, you know. In fact, it's pretty good. And I'm going to um, do this. I'm going to go upstairs and uh, I'm about to get Scout, the dog, and see if she wants to go outside or something. I thought I had a coffee filter before to uh, ash a cigar in, but I did not. So I'm going to get one of those. Or I'm going to get one of these bowls. I probably need to feed the dog, too. That may be a good idea. <laughs> I'm coming across as like a terrible dog sitter. Scout. Oh, look at that. It got lost in spaces on the TV. This is another thing I love about my parents' house is uh, they've got cable. And there's a really good channel on cable that I always put it on. It's called uh, MeTV, you know. And uh, MeTV is uh, shows a lot of, you know, kind of, it's basically like TV land in the, in the 90s. It just shows a lot of... Uh, old shows, you know, it shows, uh, it actually shows a uh, Svengoolie, you know, Svengoolie, of course, um, <coughs> is, um, he's a, he's a horror movie host, you know, he's a monster show host. He dresses as like a ghoul and, uh, does kind of corny jokes of the break and he'll have on guests, you know, from B movies and stuff, so. But I missed him, actually, because I was at that movie. He comes on kind of early in the night, you know, for a horror movie host. He comes on about 9 o'clock, <laughs> you know. So, but I didn't get to see him. I think tonight he was showing, uh, I got home and saw, like, the last 20 minutes of it. He was uh, showing Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, you know, which I've never seen that movie. <laughs> that just sounds like a, a, a title that you've heard so many times in like a satirical context, like yeah, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, that you're not sure it's an actual real movie, but uh, apparently it is. So, come on, Scout, go outside. She, she's like refusing to uh, to like go out to the rainy night. See, I love this effect here of like you know looking into the into the street and everything's black but you know there's a, a street light about 300 yards down the way and it just lights up the night in such a beautiful way and just kind of gives all these trees perfect silhouettes you know it's i don't know it's neat i wish i could paint <laughs> so that, that would be like the first thing i would paint you know i have all these things like that i that i want to be able to paint but i don't have any artistic skill you know like i want to be able to paint scenes of you know, nighttime suburbia, you know, like gas stations with halogen lights, you know, and people hanging out outside drinking big gulps and talking about what they're going to do for the night. You know, I want to paint like, you know, interiors of video stores, you know, like where a kid is leading his parents around the, uh, around the video store and trying to pick a movie, trying to go home with that one perfect videotape and uh, waiting for his parents to walk away for a second so he could, like, traipse down the horror movie aisle. You know, I want to be able to paint something like that. God dang it. Why can't I have any artistic talent? I don't know. 
Like my 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 little eight year old niece, Maddie, was in town this week, and I went and hung out with her on a Tuesday. Like we went to uh, the McWayne Science Center, you know, and uh, we were walking around there, and 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 she can't. She loves to draw. Like she can't go anywhere without her pencil and paper and she you know she'll just I was like sitting with her in the back seat and she was just going through paper after paper just drawing things and she's for some reason obsessed with the Illuminati pyramid you know the the the, the pyramid with the eye on it she's like obsessed with that and she's like oh it's an Illuminati eating a pizza you know like she'll, she'll like just show like this horrible deceptive symbol you know this 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 devious symbol of the new world order and all that's evil, you know, like the, 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 the rich people stacking the chips against the poor people. And, uh, you know, she'll have it eaten a pizza. So I guess it's satirical, but I don't know. But, you know, she, she just, uh, you know, she's, her drawings are not very good, I'll admit it. You know, I mean, she's eight years old and she's finding her talent. But nevertheless, she's not afraid to try. And I, and I don't have that in me, you know. I'm like, I'm, I'm terrified to try something. You know, this is why, like, I, I'm like, you know, before I uh, record my podcast, I get a little bit of a nerves, you know, before I hit the record button, because I'm like, man, is this going to suck or not? Like, I'm just kind of afraid to uh, make that leap to try something. And I guess I could do it with podcasting and, and writing, you know, to a certain degree, because um, I guess it's just kind of easy to uh to do it for me you know and if if i mess up i i could always hit stop or i can delete what i just wrote but painting is a lot harder because uh, once you get into painting you got all your oils and pastels on that canvas that you paid a lot of money for there's really no going back you have to like take your mistakes and and turn them into success right there in front of you and that would just destroy me like i i would i would not be able to have that kind of discipline to just look at a mistake and know that, okay, I have to, it's on there, the paint's dry, I'm going to have to, like, do something with that now and turn it into something that looks good, you know. Or I guess just paint over and start again, I'm not sure. How much is a canvas? I don't even know. I mean, they look kind of expensive, you know. But, <laughs> where did my dog go? I don't know. She's around here somewhere. I just saw Scout under my chair, and now she's vanished. Sure, she's scout, scout. Yeah. And check out the cigar really quick. So I don't know, Ten Cloverfield Lane. Yeah, I would, I would uh, recommend it. There she is. There's Scout. Hey, Scout. We go. Um, we go see it. I don't know what else is going on in the world tonight. <laughs> you know, I don't really have many notes, and uh, this is kind of a just a fly-by-night show. I don't really know what I'm going to talk about tonight. I went to uh, TEDx today. That was what I spent my day doing. Um... You know, uh, TEDx is like this. Let me unwrap the cigar one second. Hang on.
a torpedo cigar. I don't necessarily like these torpedo cigars as much. I just don't like the ends of them, you know. But I don't know what brand this is. I've never seen this before. Like I said, this is a cigar of the month um, edition. Jessica for Valentine's Day signed me up for a three month three month uh, subscription to the Cigar of the Month Club. So that was really great of her. And uh, they send me five cigars a month. And uh, this is the last cigar of, of this month of February. And I should get another shipment in like next week, I think. C U B C Y B a sib. I don't know what a sib is. I don't know that brand. But the uh, label is blue with a red logo. So it smells pretty good. It's kind of sweet, and it's a it's a dark it's a dark color and uh, kind of sweet. Kind of like those uh, acid cigars, you know, it, almost like, you know, those kind of chocolatey cocoa acid cigars, which I don't really like as much, but a cigar is a cigar. I always like trying new cigars, you know, so. But yeah, I, uh, I went to uh, TEDx today, attended that event, and uh, TED, if you if you never heard of it, you know, you may have listened to like NPR or something. Um it's these TED Talks, and uh, TED Talks are, first of all, the acronym TED stands for Technology, Education, and Design, and uh, there's TED Talks normally that are organized by the, you know, by the uh, coalition of TED itself, and then there's these TEDx events, and the X, I guess, is like a little asterisk that denotes that it's independently organized, so it's like people watch TED events, and then they want to, like, create TED Talks in their own town, without the uh, aid of the national organization or the global organization. So they just uh, do it locally, and then they get TED. It's kind of like just a franchise, essentially. So, so um, you know, people throughout the day, I saw 17 speakers today, and uh, they all came on stage and, and did about a 15-minute talk each about um, – you know, something that they're a professional in or something that they're passionate about. Like there were several writers, several teachers. Uh, there were there was a biologist, you know, there was a um, uh, like a, a this is the most interesting one, the a medical futurist, you know, a guy who uh, came on and talked about all the advances in medication, you know, and uh, and, and technology to essentially um, to where we can start prescribing ourselves through the use of technology, you know. And saving our trip, you know, selves like trips to the emergency room and whatnot. So, so you know, it's a it was a pretty interesting day. Uh, this this year was kind of special for me. This is my second year that I had, have gone to the TEDx event here in Birmingham. Uh, last year I worked it as a volunteer, and this year I actually got to go um, as an attendee. I uh, became like an educator fellow, and essentially what that is is that uh, you know TEDx. Uh, accepts 20 people who apply within the uh, community who are educators. And I guess I, I'm an educator. I work with a nonprofit, and I'm the educator on staff there. I take kids on field trips and, and, and do, you know, guided hikes and activities with them and stuff. And I applied this year um, and uh, and got accepted, which surprised me because I never get accepted to anything, you know, like 
really. <laughs> you know, I, it's like almost everything I've ever applied to in my life, except like college, you know, and the occasional job or two, you know, I, I, I don't get. So I actually got it this year. And, uh, you know, we have to, you know, attend TEDx, but also kind of work together throughout the year to create a service project, which has not happened yet. We'll, we'll you know, we just started doing this last month, so that comes in the next year, so. But it was good. I was actually, I went to the TEDx today. We, we watched all the speakers, and uh, at one point they recognized on stage, they, they recognized all the Ed Fellows. They're like, well, all the Ed Fellows stand up. And they said, like, these are 20 of the best educators we have in Birmingham. And at that moment, I didn't even notice that I did it. I just, like, compulsively looked down at my badge, at my lanyard that I was wearing to to make sure that I was an Ed Fellow because I didn't know. I've never heard this, like, modifier attached to me, you know, like a good educator. I don't know. And, uh, you know, I just had, had, like, this rush of confidence, and it, like, shot me up and made me stand up. So I'm standing up with, like, 20 other people within the crowd, and everybody's, like, applauding and... And I'm looking at the other Ed fellows around me to, like, wait for somebody to sit down because I'm like, I think we've been standing up for a while. You know, because I, I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you've been recognized and you have to stand up while everybody, like, applauds you. And uh, and so we're all just standing there, like, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, okay, somebody's got to sit down here because we're standing up here for, like, 10, 15 seconds. So finally I just, like start to sit down, but everybody else is still standing up, so I stay standing up. <laughs> and then I just, like, wait for the applause around me, just the slightest amount, you know, almost like you're waiting, you know, you're listening for rain to let up, you know. Just the slightest little bit of applause to drop around me, and then I started to sit, and then it all started to fall off. So, <laughs> you know, that was an interesting thing. I, that's never happened to me before, you know. You know, they used to have those... um award days you know at the end of high school where you would come into the gymnasium at the very end of the year and uh they would give everybody like awards like honor them by name and give them like certificates or medals or something and uh you know they would never uh you know i would never get one of these awards you know and uh, it just never happened to me you know you could get you know the academic awards which i never did anything amazing in academics or they would give the sports awards, you know, and I never did anything amazing in sports or, you know, so on and so forth. But one year I actually was recognized and it was one of those things where I would get a certificate. I would come up while everybody applauded, walk up to the very front and uh, receive my certificate for being the most improved student in history in the 10th grade. But I was absent that day. That's <laughs> like, you know, I had like a bad flu at the very end of the school year. And it was the one time I would have been uh, recognized. You know, and I was sick. And my mom told me about it later. And she brought the certificate home to me. She said, Miss, Miss Bishop, you know, Miss Bishop was my uh, history teacher was so proud of you. You know, at the very beginning of the year, you had D's, and you came out of it with A's, you know, and so in history class, you know. So 
Yeah, that was really the, I, honestly, you know, I'm 33 years old. That was the very first time I've ever been, like, honored in the middle of the day. But, but you know, these TED Talks are pretty interesting. Uh, sometimes I have, like, conflicting emotions about them because um, a lot of them can be very good, you know, like, full of people who are very passionate about what they do in life and they want to inspire you to make change and the whole slogan of TEDx is, you know, ideas worth sharing. Um, but once they're done, you know, it's kind of up to you to take what they've said and apply it. You know, like there's so many great ideas. I want to like apply them. I want to go out and change the world and, you know, like, <laughs> and I, you know, and I, I, I think that like the best Ted talks are the ones that make you feel a little bit guilty that you're not already, already like doing what these people are advocating. Like, you know, for instance, you know, today there was an educator who gave a Ted talk about working with critically at-risk youth, you know. And these are, like, the, 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 the at-risk youth who are, like, dang, like if not, you know, educated, if not worked with very closely, you know, not as a face in the crowd in, like, the overwhelming public school system, you know, they're going to turn violent. They're actually, these are the people who are going to rape people or go to jail, you know, like, get on death row. I mean, like, if they're not intervened these could be very dangerous people and it is within our means to really take them on and and work with them and and you know i'm sitting there as like this you know this guy i've never really even thought about the idea of critically at risk you know of course as an educator we always hear about at risk youth you know the kids who have broken home lives you know parents like who are in you know divorced and um you know, and, and, and their their family situations are very screwed up and they act out in class. They have, like, hyperactive disorders, you know, just all these, like, maladies, social and emotional and otherwise. And those are the at-risk youth, but the critically at-risk are the kids who are, like, 12 years old and they have a kid, you know, for instance, or, you know, they've been, like, gang-raped or something. You know, just like these are like the the really absolute dregs of society that most systems, you know, be it the criminal justice system or the school system, write off. And, you know, here's this educator. She's up there giving the TED talk on the stage talking about all these kids she's worked with and these, you know, lives that she's helped change. You know, she's gotten them into occupational therapy, you know, gotten them jobs you know, fostered in them a love of learning and reading. And then she leaves the stage and everybody's clapping and I'm just like sitting there feeling like a piece of shit because <laughs> like I, I just, I'm, I, I don't even know like how I can, you know, work with these, you know, kids. And I don't even know if that's my mission in life, you know. But if I'm sitting there and I'm a teacher and I've embarked on a life of education and a career of education, then I should at least be thinking on that level. Like, it's almost to the point where that's fantastic that you work with a bunch of kids, but they are, are they really kids that need the most help, you know? So it just kind of gave me this feeling of guilt. Like, maybe I'm not challenging myself enough in life. I don't know. And it stayed with me, you know, it still stays with me. You know, it's a, it's a it's a tough thing to live with this knowledge that 
no matter what you do, no matter who you help, there's always going to be somebody out there that needs more help, you know. Or there's always going to be something out there that, you know, more that you can do. You know, it's like the, the end of Schindler's List, for God's sakes. Where he's like, this watch, you know, this watch could have bought three more lives, you know. And it's, you know, God damn, it's a terrible thing to think about, you know, on this Saturday night. Sitting in this nice warm basement, you know, watching the rainfall. In, in any case, there it is, you know. I don't know. I don't know if I'd ever be able to get to that point. Um, another guy that was very interesting, uh, and, and I wasn't anticipating to be, like, interested in this TED Talk today, there was this biologist who came on stage. This biologist at UAB, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, you know. And he comes to stage talking about... Uh, and he he sets down. He has like this pill, this uh, this uh, you know uh, jar of pills, just white pills, and you know he 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 sets them on a bench, and then he's talking about these pills, and he's like, these pills have been proven to um, lessen the aging process, you know, cure these typical maladies that are associated with aging such as dementia and Alzheimer's and heart disease. And he's like, but with any medication, there's side effects. And he said, and the side effects of this particular medication, these pills in this jar have been proven to lower the risk of cancer in most adults, as well as diabetes. And he said, and best of all, these pills can be bought for under $5. And... I'm thinking, and I even, like, talked to some people after this, I'm thinking, okay, this is a metaphor. <laughs> like, he's, like, th there's no way that this is real. You know, these are not real pills. He's going to say that this is diet and exercise. But then I, then I corrected myself. I was like, no, there's only one jar of pills. I mean, it can either be diet or exercise, but you always hear them, you know. But, no, he said this is a real pill. It's called, um, what do you call it? It said it's memorphin. Something like that. I don't know if you've heard about this. But he says, you know, it's it's gone through testing with mice and laboratory animals. You know? And uh, it's been proven to just es essentially make the aging process a lot easier, you know? And, 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 and strike out all these horrible things. Because, I mean, human beings up until about 80 years ago were not meant to live as long as the, we're living right now. And with advancements in medicine, we're going to continue to, you know, live longer lives. And this pill, these pills, you know, once they go through six years of testing and approval by the FDA and that whole process, you know, people can take these and, and essentially live longer, fuller lives with their full mental and physical capacities in check for a longer amount of time, you know. And his whole point in getting to this is the fact that we have these social constructs that we've made for ourselves, these ideas of being a child and being a teenager, going through a period of education and then having a career, and then after that we retire and we don't do anything except essentially collect Social Security, you know, and wait to die. 
And that that's the period of our life that we get these horrible diseases. And he's like, hey, listen, okay, so if we're going to, as a society, so, you know, accept the fact that there's this pill now that can lessen the effects of aging and allow us to have longer lives with our mental and emotional or our physical capacities in check, then we need to earn that. We need to earn these pills. And he said we need to break down these social constructs of what it means to retire. And once we go through our career and retire from that, then we need to essentially repeat the process. We need to go back to school, learn a new skill, find a new way to contribute to society and earn the extra time on this earth that we have. And, you know, that was a very, you know, interesting uh, idea to me. And one that I've heard before. And, uh, you know, because I had read this uh, this book, this, uh, this book called uh, 2030 by Albert Brooks, you know. The comedian. He wrote a book a few years ago. And that was what that book was about. That was about um, people living longer lives. It took place about 20 years in the future, you know, in 2030. And people are able to live until they're about 120, 125 years old with perfectly healthy lives, you know, until very late in life. And there is this generational terrorism going on where essentially young people are being asked to subsidize the lives of these older people who are living much longer than they were working, you know? Like, they retire at 65 and essentially live 40 years beyond their retirement age, you know? And uh, and so, like, these young people are, like, hijacking these cruise liners and hotels in Miami Beach, these places where old people go, and holding old people hostage, and in some cases, like, bombing and killing them. Because they are very angry um, at the idea of subsidizing these older people, having to pay for it. And it's uh, leading them to live, you know, longer lives, you know, working. So it asks the question, what if the technology changes to keep people alive? And what if, you know, life-improving advances go on, medical achievements improve life and quality of life so much but we don't earn that with any kind of giving back to society or community service, you know. And, you know, that's absolutely true. Like, we're, we're going to, if we, if, we, if we are able to expand our quality of life, then we're going to have to earn that with some kind of, um, you know, going back to school, doing community service, giving back, earning our place on this earth. So it's not just, you know, we tend to think of, living longer, fuller lives is being retired, you know, and and uh, getting in RVs and, you know, going across the country. And we can do that. There's That's no problem at all. But it's kind of a selfish pursuit if you think about it, you know, very selfish, you know. You know, I envy both of my parents. I mean, they're old. I don't envy that, you know, but it's the fact that they're both retired now and they can do whatever they want. But the weird thing is, is that they're both still working, you know. My mom has like a million things that she does, you know. She belongs to all these garden clubs, you know. She's taken up the piano. She does occasional consulting work for teachers and uh, and tourism firms, you know, because she used to uh, take her kids on trips to Italy, you know, when she was a teacher. And she works with a tourism firm that helps put together 
you know, cultural field trips overseas for, you know, for, uh, for kids. And my dad is doing consulting work right now. So, I mean, they're clearly two people who like the idea of working and giving back to society. And I don't know if they pass that down to me because, like, right now, all I think about is, like, I can't wait <laughs> until the day I retire, you know, and I could just, you know, sit in a basement all day and podcast and smoke cigars. But, you know, that's a young person's dream. And I, and I like to think the idea of, you know, after 30, 35, maybe even 40 years of working and contributing to society, that, that becomes like an addiction. That becomes like a skill that you cannot give up very easily. It becomes just a way of life. And settling back and retiring and just doing nothing but collecting Social Security checks, although I don't know if that's going to be a reality when I'm... Uh, my dad's age, because I think, you know, Social Security, its days are probably pretty numbered, you know, at the moment. Because I think that we're paying more into Social Security, or no, we're paying, you know, out more in Social Security than we're paying into it right now. So, because of the baby boomers collecting it all, you know. So, you know, it just gives you a lot to think about. I don't know. You know, my, my problem is that um, I tend to slack a lot. I tend to slack off, like, a ton, you know. I tend to, like, you know, sit around and, like, drink coffee or drink beer and, like, watch TV or read books. And I go to sleep every night, you know, wondering, like, what have I really done today? Like, what was my kind of chief goal? Did I achieve that goal? And I guess I, I don't set goals. I don't know. I tend to think of that as kind of a day people thing, you know, like getting up in the morning and just like setting a goal for the day. And But it it is true. Like I, I feel a little guilty if I go to bed at night and I haven't done anything with my day. You know? So, uh, like... But I, I just I have a hard time taking positions on things and 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 uh, you know just snapping to it and trying to be proactive about things that move me to 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 anger, you know things that I think a lot about. Like I'll give a perfect example right now. You know this whole Donald Trump thing. Like everybody's mad at this Donald Trump. You know. And I was watching some Periscope videos. You know this morning of protests. In Chicago, of all these people just getting like, oh, my God, Donald Trump, go home, racist, go home. And, I mean, you know, yeah, right. You know, people who go for Donald Trump, you know, are not necessarily the most well-adjusted people in the world. But I, I just, I, I don't have the kind of personality that can move to this point where I'm taking bullhorns and I'm going out into the streets and yelling at people for a cause. I just don't know if I have... That personality, I don't know if I could ever be that kind of person, you know? I have a hard time taking positions with things, even if I'm passionate about them. Because I, I just ultimately like to move on with my day, you know, accomplish things, you know, take the dog for a walk. <laughs> you know, go to work, do what needs to be done there. Um... And then at the end of the day, just come home, like, having been satisfied that I contributed to society during the day, you know? Like, I have a hard time just taking positions actively, 
like actively exhibiting and manifesting my political stances. You know, if it's beyond what is essentially required of me throughout the day, you know, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I, you know, I've been talking with uh, my wife about this lately. Like, is that a good thing? I don't know to be indifferent, but I'm not indifferent. I have positions about things and I, and I have opinions. God knows I have opinions. But at the end of the day, like, I mean, is it, is it a, a good to go to sleep having not done anything to show them to move to action? I don't really know. You know? I slack at the end of the day, but it's not like every day is a waste, you know? Like, I do things. I go to work. I contribute. You know, I get a paycheck at the end of two weeks, and, you know, I'm nice to people. I'm not mad. I mean, you know, if somebody cuts me off in traffic... I don't honk my horn, you know? You see people all day long that just, you know, with their horns, getting mad for things that two seconds later are out of their minds totally, you know? I don't know. I mean, what is the ultimate point, you know, to, like, go through day, you know, letting everybody know about your opinions and trying to change the world, you know, with one Facebook post at a time? Or is it just to ultimately, like, keep quiet and uh, trust that things are going to change? I, don't, I, I can guarantee you that, like, that if, you, if I were to say that to any of those TEDx speakers today, they would say, no, you have to jump in, you have to do something, you have to exhibit your passion and, and, and move to action and mobilize, you know, and organize but I just don't know if I have the energy. You know? I just don't know how, if I have that like kind of drive, you know, that that passion. Maybe I will someday. I don't know. You know, I do this podcast and kind of like the romantic notion of talking into a microphone is to move people to action. You know. Just to like be in front of people or be behind a mic in a in a in a dark studio, you know, emoting people, you know, getting them to feel something and getting them to do something, like in the movie Pump Up the Volume, you know that, you know, Happy Harry Hard on, you know, Christian Slater is really mad at the school system. He's mad at that they're kicking kids out that that are slightly different, you know. And uh, so he he creates this radio show to move everybody to action. He's like, find your voice and use it. You know, it's a very romantic idea of what you do with a microphone and a radio show and a transmitter, you know. I ultimately don't know if I want to do that. You know, I, I don't think, like, that's really the point. Like, the point of the show is just to kind of get my opinions out. And then maybe if you do something about it, that's great. But I don't really, see, I don't really have, like, any dramatic world-changing opinions. I'm not like, write your congressman, you know. Donald Trump is coming to Birmingham tomorrow. Go go to this place and mobilize against him. You know, I'm just I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Cuz I, you know, it's not that I'm saying that all that ultimately has no point. It's just that I don't want to be I I guess at the end of the day I just don't want to be controversial, you know. 
I like the idea of standing on the sidelines. I think that's it right there. I, I like the idea. I'm I'm like a sideline guy, you know. And certainly not the coach that stands on the sideline barking orders, you know. I'm I'm like the guy that takes the pictures, you know, or the 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 commentators. I'm like the guys up in the bleachers, you know, who are in the 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 press box calling the game, you know, calling the plays. I like being in that position, you know. Objective. Sure, I've got my own opinions, but I'm ultimately not telling you one way or the other what to do with them, you know. I mean, all of my heroes in life, if you think about it, are like that, you know. Like, I have uh, Joe Bob Briggs, for instance, you know. Joe Bob Briggs is this guy who never really moved anybody to have an you know, opinion one way or the other, but he was definitely sure to give you his and what he thought about it. And he was a great social satirist, you know, a guy who was able to look at the politics of the country really long, a long time before anybody was dissecting how horrible PC is, being politically correct. And he was being politically incorrect, you know, Definitely, you know, is like this obnoxious, rednecked, you know, misogynist, bigoted kind of character to call out how absurd it is to be like that in the 20th century, you know. And uh, that was the opinion that he took. And what, what ultimately what his audience did with that opinion was their was their task, you know. He wasn't at rallies mobilizing people to beat up protesters who didn't agree with them. Like this Donald Trump guy. You know, you look at like uh, Albert Brooks, you know, who wrote that book 2030. Albert Brooks is another hero of mine because, you know, he's able to look at society and, and write interesting films about it, you know, and write interesting books and say, this is what we look like. He's painting this outsider looking in perspective, you know. And uh, and 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 I, and I like that idea. You know, Gene Shepard, last but not least the great radio host who is the reason that I do this podcast, you know, every night for about 30 years, Gene Shepard sat in a studio in New York and critiqued society. You know, he, he looked at little things that he saw, you know, he was just the minutia, you know, like the way that people greet each other on the subway, you know, or the, the way that people wear these, you know, political statements on their on their on their lapels and and plaster them and bumper stickers to their cars you know and just notice the absurdity in that the fact that like people just walk around branding themselves with what they're against you know and uh never mobilized actively anybody to action but was able to state an opinion and what his audience did with that opinion was up to them you know So, and I think ultimately, you know, that, that's, that's kind of what I do. I was sitting in that crowd today at TEDx feeling a little guilty about, you know, just not having that same kind of drive and energy to go out and change the world like these TEDx speakers were telling me to, <laughs> you know. But... Changing the world is an objective thing, you know, is a totally subjective thing. And uh, 
And there is this very romantic notion and this kind of painted picture of people changing the world, you know, getting up on soapboxes, gesticulating, slinging their fists around, yelling, getting people all hot and bothered and excited. But, um, you know, I think you can also change the world just, you know, talking into a microphone quietly and, uh, and, uh, hoping that people, your opinions matter to people and, uh, and, and get them to think about the world one way or the other. I don't know. I know that that's the way Gene Shepard, you know, listening to like hours and hours of his old shows, you know, from 40, 50 years ago, got me to think about things, you know, like sometimes the best thing to do is to stand on the sidelines and just call the plays (laughs) and, uh, Maybe get people to think about things like step out of the absurdity, step out of the uh, throngs and the fray of Donald Trump rallies and get to look at them and how absurd they are from the outside, you know. Like, look at this. This is ridiculous. (laughs) You know. Get them to see both sides of the argument. I don't know. Yeah. Realized I never started this cigar in the show. I'll have it in just a minute. I don't know about that chocolatey smell. Yeah, well, cigar's a cigar. Whatever. Well, thank you very much for joining me here tonight. And it stopped raining. Look at that. I'm walking outside. It's not raining anymore. I noticed that it stopped raining just now. It's nice. I'll make myself another cup of coffee. Well, in any case, as uh, John Goodman says, keep your eyes open. <laughs>